Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Tell It Slant, the truth of the bombs bursting in air. Our opening song is When Johnny Comes Marching Home by Jimmy Smith off of the 1960 album Crazy Baby. American poet Emily Dickinson wrote, Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children ease with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Painter Pablo Picasso tells us that art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. And historian Howard Zinn suggests that fiction that satirizes in order to ruin the sacred truths, notions like a good war, for example, will often be applauded and praised, while nonfiction with the same target, the kind of writing that attempts to speak truth directly, will be discounted, marginalized, and scorned, and the author vilified as a traitorous liar, and in this country, as un-American. Our guest today, Bruce Franklin, has personal experience with this, having been fired from Stanford University for speaking truth directly, an anti-war activist, and the first tenured professor to be dismissed from Stanford Franklin was fired in 1972 for allegedly urging and inciting students and others to disrupt university functions through two public speeches and a verbal protest to police who had ordered the dispersal of a crowd of students. Bruce Franklin joined us in September last year to discuss his book, Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War. Today he returns in order to help us connect lots of dots. He'll argue, among other things, that we need to learn what three particular dead white guys are still trying to teach us. Two were bombardiers in World War II, Joseph Heller and Howard Zinn. One, Hoosier Kurt Vonnegut, was bombed in that same war by the self-proclaimed good guys. All three raised this question. Who won that so-called good war? The definitive answer may come in November 2020. We're close to repeating what happened in Germany in the 1930s. Germany was a small, almost landlocked nation in the middle of Europe. It could be defeated, but not without the combined forces of the Soviet Union and United States. If next year America votes to confirm itself a white nationalist global empire, who or what can save our species from the result? H. Bruce Franklin was an Air Force navigator and intelligence officer, but is now and has been for more than half a century an anti-war and progressive activist and renowned historian and author. His 19 books and hundreds of articles cover American studies, science fiction, prison literature, and marine ecology. He retired in 2016 from a 30-year career as a professor at Rutgers University in Newark. His latest book, Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War, is memoir, history, and analysis, and published by Rutgers University Press. And now, Tell It Slant with Bruce Franklin on Interchange on WFHB. Bruce Franklin, welcome back to Interchange. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, so let's raise an obvious first question. Bruce, um, how in the world can the words of three dead white guys whose consciousness was formed in World War II, the so-called Good War, possibly help us understand the mess we're in now and what we do about it? Yeah, well, one of them, of course, is a great historian. 
and the other two are novelists, fiction writers. All three have had an enormous impact on our culture. And um, now there's a big movement on the right to get rid of Howard Zinn's history attacks. There's not much they can do about um, the major works of Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut. Um, but you know, we're going to be talking a lot about history. And I think to, to locate us uh, in history is, is very important to understand why, the, why this history uh, is uh, such a battle, battleground. Um, so this morning I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, so the lead opinion piece by one of their editors is, uh, is an attack on those of us who believe that the history of America really begins in the year 1619. This is called, this is an attack on what they call the 1619 Project. So, you know, what, hap- what happened in 1619 is this Jamestown colony, uh, two pirate ships arrived um, with cargoes of African slaves. Uh, and so slavery started uh, in the, this colony at that point. Uh, at the same time, I, I think this is really important to understand, well, there's a, there's a really good book called um, 1619, James Time, The Forging of American Democracy by James Horn, um, which documents that at the same time this colony was issuing documents establishing a ver- very radical concept of democracy for whom, of course, for the white British land-owning male settlers. Um, but, but it was democracy for them, and it was, it was anti the, the monarchy. Um, and so we, we see this dialectic uh, of America beginning right there. It's, there's a slave colony, which at the same time perceives itself as what we would call a democracy. Mm-hmm. And, so the, and so, the, so the battle is still going on right up through this morning's Wall Street Journal. I mean, they, they, take, they take this very seriously. Um, so we have um, history as as a battleground. Mm-hmm. You know, we, where we you know, where are we? How do we, how do we get here? Um, and at the same time, uh, something which is more threatening, and that is an attack on history itself, which is also an attack on, on science. So we're not we're not really supposed to know history, and, we, and we're supposed to reject science because if we understood our history, understood our science, uh, we probably wouldn't be in the fix that we are. So the, these three authors, uh, they're all part of the so-called greatest generation. They were born actually within. Uh, 10 months of each other, uh, 
20 to 23. And um, there's Joseph Heller and Howard Zinn, both bombardiers in, in World War II. Um, and and they, their experience of being bombardiers in World War II poses the question that they then posed to us, who won, who won that war? And then the third one, Kurt Vonnegut, was the, the victim of this bombing, the, the firebombing of, of Dresden shortly before the end of World War II in, in, in Europe. So this question of who won World War II, um, the world uh, that we thought was a war against fascism, um, an empire, and for freedom and for democracy, um, who won? Um, this dialectic that I that I mentioned between these these two forces, beginning back in 1619, is still with us. Uh, as as Kurt Vonnegut said, you know, after the end of World War Two, what followed was World War Three, which has been going on ever since. And so I think the um, the question of who won. It's still somewhat. It's still somewhat open. I don't know if it will still be open after November twenty twenty. Mm. Yeah, with uh, with the situation we're in now, that's uh, questionable. Obviously, the the situation you pose with uh, these these three people in particular um, is one in which we do see these contradictions. And the the point that you start out in, as well as what it seems that um, Howard Zinn might start in as well, is um, a, as a man who is. Um, taken in by the uh, aspect of of the technologies of war, the the flying uh, like these flying machines that are that are um, romantic and and it's a fascinating situation to be in as a as a young child. You're swept up in propaganda as well, um, and and Howard Zinn makes this point also that um, I think it's in his uh, the bomb uh, pamphlet where he talks about Hiroshima the. That he and his wife are, uh, I think, on leave at some point, and they see uh, a newspaper that says uh, that the bomb has been dropped, and they both uh, feel uh, happy, uh, happiness about it, right? So one of the things that we we need to, f- I think, confront as people is that uh, we have to come to these realizations of these these contradictions and ambiguities and confusions that patriotism, that love of country, that all these things were fed uh, from, you know, birth forward in terms of our own societies um, are are masking realities of the way the world works. Well, this is certainly true, and my experience is that I was a child in World War II, while while these three men were fighting World War II. So I was seven years old when it began for the American... uh, 11 when it ended. So I was totally um, taken over by the cult of the of the war plane, the war plane. Mm-hmm. Oh, this, I, I internalized that. So so you know, I was building models of war planes and 
going in uh, gathering uh, scrap metal to support the war effort um, and was completely unquestioning about that and then unquestioning about um, the, the assumptions of the Cold War, which were beginning uh, at the very moment that World War II was ending. So for me, and why I guess these authors speak so directly to me, uh, was my experience flying in the Strategic Air Command then, um, thinking I was defending freedom and democracy from this um, red octopus, mm-hmm. yellow octopus during World War II, and I was a red, a red octopus, and I... And then I had all these eye-opening experiences, which you know, we, you know, we talked about when I was on the program, mm-hmm. which is, of course, in the book. Um, it's interesting um, about the, these two bombardiers. Um, Catch-22, we'll talk about this in detail later, but Catch-22 is a you know, very funny book most of the way, uh, even even as it's hitting us over the head with some grim realities. But the book becomes almost entirely dark, very, very dark, at a certain moment when um, the squadron is assigned the mission of bombing this undefended Italian uh, village. And the point really was to have pictures of a great uh, bomb pattern. Um, And and the pilots and bombardiers um, realized that there's there's no military reason for this attack. Well, that's that's in Hella's novel. Mm-hmm. That's that's fiction. I think it's based on reality. Then we have Howard Zinn, who also a bombardier. Um, his his last publication in. Uh, 2010, just shortly before, before he died, called, called the bomb, which you referred to, is is exactly this kind, the same kind of mission, uh, with he's the bombardier, and and they are bombing an undefended French village on the coast three weeks before the end of the, the war uh, in Europe, um, American troops and. and Soviet troops are already fighting in Germany, and they're bombing a seaside French city with napalm. And and, uh, this is the first time that the 8th Air Force had napalm. Uh, And and it's not until that that late moment that um, Zinn returns to that. So, Mm -hmm. so, So both of these missions... One in the novel, the other in uh, this nonfiction book, um, ch- change their outlook on w- w- what they were doing as bombardiers. And then there is Kurt Douglas, Kurt, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut, as a prisoner uh, in in Dresden, yeah. when when the whole city was firebombed with a with the objective of killing everybody in the city. Um, and uh, we're now celebrating um, 
the, our victory in the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, but Bruce, let's get to that in the next segment. Let's take a break real quick, and we'll, we'll cover those uh, situations. This is uh, Billie Holiday from 1935 singing Yankee Doodle Never Went to Town. More with Bruce Franklin and the truth about the bombs bursting in air when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, and social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Welcome back to Interchange. Uh, you're listening to um, uh, Bruce Franklin joining us today to talk about uh, three dead white guys, Howard Zinn, Kurt Vonnegut, and Joseph Heller, uh, deal with the kind of war mythologies that we're, we're always confronting. And before uh, we went to the break, uh, Bruce had mentioned that we're celebrating the Battle of the Bulge. And I, I noted that uh, a friend of mine sent me this. Actually, I didn't see it myself, but a friend of me sent a friend of mine sent to me a, a Washington Post article on uh, the this um, apparently a um, what it was it a U.S. Army unit shared a tribute to the greatest battle in American history um, and detailed it with a picture of a Nazi. Um, war criminal Joaquin Piper, I think, an infamous German commander who ordered the massacre of 84 U.S. prisoners of war during that very battle. So the the U.S. Army unit shared a picture of a Nazi to celebrate, uh, I guess, the success of uh, fighting in a war on a particular side. I'm not sure. There's confusion about how they defended this particular situation, but um, that's uh, obviously disturbing, and it's one of the issues that we've run into over and over again is the way these authoritarian institutions uh, seem to bleed and blend into a fascist response. Yeah, well, it's particularly ironic because uh, well, like, the good thing is that that particular Nazi who was infamous, um, was, um, his unit was not the unit that captured... Um, Kurt Vonnegut uh, right. captured in the same in the same battle. His whole his whole division was wiped out. The hundred and six uh, six thousand prisoners, and a number of them were executed. But he but he survived. What, what I find really scary. I've been doing some. I've been kind of forced back by, by some things to 
go into German history in, in the 30s, particularly 31 to 30, 1931 to 33. Um, and the, the similarities are, are, are really very frightening. I mean, you have exactly the same personality uh, and, and the same bullying, the same, uh, the same way that he was supported by the big industrialists, especially I.G. Farben in, in Germany, um, as, as we have now. Um, and, and, what, and what he created was tremendously powerful. So it did, it did take the combined effort of the Soviet Union, who did responsible for most of the victory and the United States um, to defeat this little land, almost landlocked uh, country in, in, in the middle of Europe. Militarily, it was so powerful that even as it was being soundly defeated on the Eastern Front by the, by the Soviets, they were able to launch this, this, this offensive, um, which, you know, set us back uh, 35, 35 miles and caused tremendous casualties. If if we if if this battle between fascism and democracy, and I think it is a battle, um, if we if we lose that in November, I don't know what's going to save our species from the results of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that these three authors are, are, are dealing with. Uh, besides our history, our, our history as a nation, uh, but also um, the, the medical history of our species. I think we, when we deal with Vonnegut's uh, Galapagos, that'll be right there. Um, it, it's not at all. It's not at all sure that we're going to be a successful species. Mm-hmm. Very, very young on this planet. And we have already created two existential threats to our existence as a species. Uh, yeah, we call ourselves Homo sapiens. You're right. We, we, are, we are so smart. We're the only species that has ever created um, the means to dis- to annihilate ourselves. And we we've created not one but two. <laughs> There's the nuclear threat, and then the threat to the environment. That's where we are. And right. Um, I, it's hard to comprehend how we could have a government, which we have now, dedicated to destroying our environment. Well, it seems like we've been dedicated to those kinds of things for a long time. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Tell It Slant, The Truth of the Bombs Bursting in Air with H. Bruce Franklin, author of Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War. We're discussing the lessons we can learn from three members of the so-called greatest generation, uh, Joseph Heller, Kurt Vonnegut, and Howard Zinn. Uh, Howard Zinn is our focus for this segment, and we started to talk about him earlier, and we've talked about him already in in many ways. One uh, thing that I, I suppose almost everybody listening probably knows Howard Zinn's the author of A People's History of the United States. It's one of the things that uh, we run across now is the attempt to constantly sort of get rid of that book in in the college curriculum and high school curriculum as well. Um, uh, Hoosiers know this well. Mitch Daniels, former uh, governor of Indiana, as well as now the uh, president of Purdue University, uh, shortly after 
Uh, Zinn died, was, uh, had sent several emails to, to people in the administration asking about uh, whether if the book had been or was being used in any way and how we could get rid of those, that kind of book. It was a book that they, we needed to get rid of because it was um, a kind of propaganda against the United States, and, and we can't have that kind of thing in our education system. So Zinn has, uh, is, is perhaps obviously a, a, a person with a focus uh, and, a, and a voice from the left, and obviously those things are not uh, uh, wanted by uh, the authorities uh, in the country. Yeah, well, I think the greatest thing about People's History by, by Howard Zinn is how he presents this fundamental dialectic of you know what is America. So you know, we we celebrate Columbus Day. That history begins with with Columbus um, and the, the 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 savagery of Columbus, the slavery, the the, the, the torture, and so that's that, that's the that's the beginning. But throughout throughout the about seven hundred pages of the most recent edition of a book that came out in 1980, we, we, we have that dialectic, and it's a, it's a class dialectic, but it's also a dialectic between these, these forces um, that are constantly in struggle throughout the entire um, four, four centuries of, of our existence as something of a set of, beginning of this couple of settler colonies. And um, this is not an anti-American book. It's a it's a book which is which shows the heroism of so much of the people who fighting against the for the forces that are continually exploiting and oppressing uh, people. Uh, it, of course, it, it's all based. Uh, his whole vision is based on a sense of class and race and and gender, um, and and we, you know, so we so we go into that book. Um, we're 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 encountering not only the 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 forces that we now would call in modern terms fascist forces. But we're we're encountering the, um, the heroism of, of parts of our population, and and particular uh, heroes of that of that struggle. Mm. So if you you go into most histories of the United States, you would see um, Harriet Tubman as a as a major figure. We do in in, in this book. Everybody should see that movie Harriet, by the way. Mm. Um, Frederick Douglass, you know, Frederick Douglass, um, who's, you know, with his great speech, mm-hmm. you know, what is the meaning of the 4th of July for the Negro? It's a speech that he gave um, in uh, 18, 1852. So, you know, it, that, that speech is, um, is, is a vision of, of what is at play if you see, if you see the here, if you see the history from the forces that govern the state, or if you see the for, if you see the history from the point of view of the governed right. and the uh, exploited, and the, uh, the vision of the, 
and the people who are the vi- victims of genocide. Right. It's one of the things that it's hard to get get home to people. Uh, you you know, we tend to take up sides in these situations where, um, you know, uh, uh, you don't side with the capitalist, or you uh, you're you're not you don't have the opportunity, and you you complain or whine about it. And you know, this is a, a perspective from the right side of the aisle, I suppose, or conservative res- perspective that's white and has opportunity, even uh, as at it, as it tries very hard not to give opportunity to others. But you made the point right there that the history has a perspective as well, and, and we write history from perspective, and generally history books are written for consumption in our schools and those particular markets that, that tout the great leaders, that tout the great battles, that that even allow a Frederick Douglass or a Harriet Tubman to represent a particular kind of individual. And usually these are uh, praising individuals as, as great actors and praising individualism through that uh, allowance of having those people be a part of history. It's not to say that there are any number of people that could or would have been like Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or were already like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and acting in similar ways and acting heroically, but we don't get that history generally. We get battles, we get generals, we get leaders, we get uh, the great innovations and technologies. That's history for us. Right, so, and, you know, and we talk about connecting the, the dots. If you just focus on uh, the forces represented by the first president who was impeached, Jackson, um, and the present president, you you see uh, a line uh, and a continuity of these contradictions that I raised at the beginning. Mm. Let's take another break, uh, Bruce. Uh, let's listen to Nightmare by Artie Shaw, recorded in 1938. It was pressed onto a V-disc in 1943. During 1942, the War and Navy Departments were working on several initiatives aimed at providing phonograph records and record players to American service personnel at home and overseas. So many of the great uh, hits of the day were sent overseas on this uh, product called V-Disc, and this is one of them, Nightmare from Artie Shaw.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Tell It Slant, the truth of, excuse me, the truth of the bombs bursting in air with author and activist H. Bruce Franklin. Our show centers on the work of three members of what's been called the greatest generation, Joseph Heller, Kurt Vonnegut, and uh, Howard Zinn. Uh, we went to the break talking a little bit about uh, Howard Zinn's people, uh, People's History of the United States. And uh, I do want to, before we move into Joseph Heller, uh, talk uh, uh, briefly about the bomb, um, the pamphlet again that, uh, that Bruce, we mentioned. This came out from City Lights Books in uh, 2010, right before, I think, uh, Howard Zinn passed away. The, the book is a combination of two essays, one on Hiroshima and Breaking the Silence, and one on this bombing raid that you talked about on the French uh, port. I think it was a, a port city, maybe, uh, or beachside city of Royan, maybe. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly. Uh, but I wanted to talk about it because I, I tell you, it's a, it's a short little book that I think everybody should read. Sometimes you, if you look at a book like The People's History, it's a lot to, it's a lot to read. It's a lot for people to think about. The Bomb, though, is a focused, um, stunning sort of, uh, again, nonfiction account. Uh, it gives accounts of, uh, from the French and German as well. Uh, Zinn had done research in 1966, I believe, into this particular bombing because he was one of the ones in uh, doing the bombing himself. And as you said already, this was, the, I think, the first use of napalm uh, in, in war, jelly gasoline. And the assumption, or I guess Zinn says straight out, that there was you know, literally no reason to drop bombs on this city. It had already been bombed before in January, I think, uh, pretty much to rubble in the first place. So it was an opportunity to use the weapon. That's the basic reason for the mission, as far as I can tell. Yeah, well, yeah. Actually, it's, it was used dropping from U.S. airplanes beginning in um, 43. Okay. Just to correct that, that which is okay. in, the, in the bomb. And this is a, this is a perfect transition to Catch-22, mm-hmm. because what, what Heller comes to realize, and the other two men, <laughs> Kirk Rollins and Howard Zinn, is that our basic strategy in World War II was a fascist strategy. It was based, I mean, this is not just using the word fascist, it was the fascist General Douai who developed this strategy, which was a strategy of terror bombing the civilian population. Terror bombing, you say? Terror bombing. And the, the, the idea was to destroy the morale of the civilian population, you know, Dewey said it's more important to to bomb the a baker than it is to bomb the trenches. Mm. Um, it's to terrorize the civilian population. So that's why the the, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the the, the firebombing of Dresden, you know, they're all parts of this of, of this strategy. And and what Cash Twenty Two makes that central. You know, it's, Ge- it's General Scheisskopf, mm-hmm. who emerges as the main military leader. But the, but the real figure that emerges with power is Milo Minderbinder, um, who, um, it's, 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 all, it's all about profit. Right. And, and Milo understands that um, the Germans and the Americans 
that is the people, the the capitalists, are on the on the same side. He right. makes he makes that clear, and you know, Saren has this big argument with him. Um, I, <laughs> you know, it's Milo goes so far as to arrange um, to have our own planes bomb our own base as part of a contract with the Germans. Well, that's that's you know a little fantastic that satire but then there's there's, there's reality um, the, supposedly we were bombing um, military especially industrial targets the, the most obvious target in the war was the headquarters of IG Farben which was the Pentagon of its time built before the Pentagon world famous uh, complex of gigantic buildings they were the ones who coordinated the entire industrial military uh, program. They had the synthetic um, fuel, the synthetic rubber, uh, the lightweight metals, um, they, they, the payroll, all the organization of the of the this incredible military might of Germany was coordinated here. They were the ones who set up Auschwitz they, they, and, and arranged the experiments at Auschwitz um, all, all during the war. They, that sat in the middle of Frankfurt. There's a movie, you can see this if you see um, Berlin Express. I think it was 1947, the first filming. Set in Frankfurt, well, most, most of the movies in Frankfurt. The entire city is reduced to rubble. The bombing, it went on from 42 on, raid after raid after raid, hundreds and hundreds of planes in each raid, raining destruction on all of Frankfurt. And, and it, it's amazing how much, um, how successful this was in destroying the city. N never, ever touching IG Farben. Um, in fact, when U.S. Play, this is where the reality uh, and Catch-22 begins to merge. When U.S. planes were approaching Frankfurt, they were not attacked by German defenses, neither aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft guns, or fighter planes did not attack the bombers as they were coming to the target, they only attacked them after they released their bombs, because if they had fired on the bombers, the bombers would have been taking evasive actions. The bombs could have gone any place. Mm -hmm. Could have maybe hit IG Farben then, I guess. Right, and, and part of that movie is actually filmed um, inside IG Farben headquarters. Oh my gosh, so you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Tell It Slant, The Truth of the Bombs Bursting in Air with H. Bruce Franklin, author of Crash Course, from the Good War to the Forever War. Uh, so Heller and Catch-22, the book is hilarious. It was written in 1961, or I guess written uh, from 1953 to 1961, published in 1961. It is very funny, and as you say, it turns dark, obviously. Uh, but it's also written in kind of an odd, well, not odd necessarily, but it's not linear per se. So we kind of bounce around in, in, in time in that particular book. And uh, But yeah, as you say, Milo Minderbinder is, is, is a clear reference to 
capitalism and the profit-making aspect of war. He's always buying and selling from different places. He's moving product around. Sausages from Poland get moved around. Uh, tomatoes get moved around. Things get moved around to sell at five cents here, four cents there. Sold back to himself, sold to the gener- generals, sold to the other, as you say, to the Germans. And uh, the whole time he's saying, but we all have a piece of it. The, the syndicate gets paid. You, Yossarian, you, the gen- the generals, I, we all have a piece of it. So isn't that great? We're, we're, we're making profit over here. Of course, you know, what's the syndicate? M&M Enterprises. M&M, that's right. M&M, Milo Minderbinder, with an ampersand in, this, in the middle so you don't think it's just about him. Right. Well, he says what's good for M&M Enterprises uh, is good for the country, <laughs> and which is General Motors. General, yeah, General Motors, that's right. You know, one of the things that struck me is uh, is that uh, I think at the in the bomb essay by Zinn, he says something similar about how it's all sort of wrapped up in these uh, sort of chain of causes, right? The infinite dispersion of responsibility that can give infinite work to historical scholarship and sociological speculation, bring an infinitely pleasurable paralysis of the will and what a complex of motives in the supreme allied command the simple momentum of the war the pull of prior commitments and preparations the need to fill out the circle to pile up the victories as high as possible at the local military level the ambitions petty and large the tug of glory the ardent need to participate in a grand communal effort by soldiers of all ranks on the part of the american air force the urge to try out newly developed weapons these are like literally um you know that's that's Catch twenty two, uh, <laughs> right there. The way that every part of the the war effort is sort of you know pieces of something that is destroying lives, destroying people, destroying horribly the the people on the ground in the situation. It's all from this abstract space of strategic bombing. You well, you know the um, the law firm of these Farben was the one the law firm of the does. The Dulles Brothers, Charles ah. Dulles, held the CIA, and John Fortner, Secretary of State, mm. and, uh, and very late before the war, they were they were beginning their letters, Heil Hitler. Oh my God! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Who right. I So <laughs> so my mind about it is not so fantastic after all, and right. that gets back to the question, which that novel is raising, um, you know, who won the, the war. That novel, you know, it, it's very early, uh, in a way, 61, because it was the Vietnam War that really um, crystallized this consciousness for Vonnegut and, and, and for, for Zinn. All three, all three of of these men were very active in, in the anti-war movement, and actually it gets back to our, our our sense of, you know, who are we, the the people of this country? <laughs> we're not all we're not all the same, and one one of the one of the great achievements of the American people was that anti-war movement, which changed consciousness. I think. Catch Twenty Two played a role in in developing the the cultural consciousness of what we call the sixties, which really mid sixties and on to the mid mid seventies. Certainly, um, Howard Zinn, um, uh, who was very active in the movement against the war, um, his his historical consciousness. 
uh, flowed directly out of what what millions, tens of millions of Americans were learning about the nature of our democ- so-called democracy during that war and with the, the tremendous struggle between the anti-war movement uh, and the government of the United States. Mm. Well, it's time for another break, Bruce. This is Not In Our Name, Charlie Hayden and the Liberation Music Orchestra from 2005. Stay with us for more with Bruce Franklin and the myth of the good war when Interchange returns on WFHB. Change comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More, informa- more information is available online at the-uptown.com. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest tonight, author and anti-war activist H. Bruce Franklin, author of many books, including Vietnam and Other American Fantasies and Crash Course from the Good War to the Forever War, published by Rutgers University Press. This is our last segment. We need to jump into Kurt Vonnegut as quickly as possible. It's a a Hoosier favorite, obviously, being from Indianapolis. uh, And as we mentioned already before, uh, a person that had survived the firebombing of Dresden. Uh, Dresden... I don't know. I don't remember the figures on that one. 120,000, 130,000 people killed in that particular raid? Well, the figures are actually in, in dispute. Okay. And, um, but, you know, Vonnegut um, was trying to write about his experience in Dresden from 1945 until Slaughterhouse Five was published in, uh, in 1969, which uh, we, is, I guess is real masterpiece and uh, it was really um, the the Vietnam War and the the movement against the war which um, allowed him to write that book and provided an instant huge audience um, for for that book Um, and he continued I want to to talk about two lesser known books by him Mm -hmm. Um, uh, 
Galapagos um, and Hocus Pocus, yep. uh, two later books, both books narrated by a, a veteran of the Vietnam War. Galapagos narrated by the ghost of a of a Marine um, who was a, a war criminal. He, he killed this old woman. He participated in burning down a village and then came to his senses, deserted to, to um, Sweden. And he's now telling us from a million years in the future um, the, the, the history of our, of our, of our species. Um, the other hocus pocus, again, somebody said um, he killed so many people in Vietnam that if he were a fighter plane, he would, his, his body would be decorated with all these with all these pictures, but uh, Hocus Hocus um, Galapagos um, is a, is a brilliant conception uh, because it, it raises this question about you know, are we really a successful species? Um, and it's rigorously scientific. Vonnegut uh, had a good background in several sciences, actually. So it, it, its main setting is the Galapagos Islands where 10 survivors, the last 10 survivors of our species because of a mutation um, evolve into another creature. The problem, as Galapagos presents it, is that our great big brains and combined with our hands allowed us to destroy the environment of of the earth, or destroy it as far as being a suitable environment for our species. And so in, in order for us to be a successful species, we have to and be fit for survival. We had to evolve into uh, a creature without, which did not have this big brain. Uh, somebody, it, creatures that were really like uh, seals or walruses, um, um, and so, very very successful species surviving for a million years, which the big brain species, with all its greed and ambition and selfishness and destructiveness and so forth, uh, was simply not fit for survival. And he he he, ma- he makes this argument in a very rigorous way. I mean, rigorous, you know, his technique. He. It, it's a jazz technique in all his books. You know, he, sa- he said, um, what I re- this is a quote, what I really would have liked to have been given a perfect world as a jazz pianist. And so if, you, if, you, if you're reading uh, Vonnebe uh, and, and you think jazz, you're going to get it a whole lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Hocus Pocus uh, it, 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 uh, like Galapagos, uh, is, a, is a science fiction novel um, seeing the future, but it's, it's a very, it's a much more realistic uh, novel, uh, which uh, imagines you know the the collapsing infrastructure of the United States, uh, um, the, the ecological devastation they were causing, uh, mass in, mass incarceration. And so forth, um, and play plays this against um, the the Vietnam War the, and the historical knowledge that this 
now brings to us as the, as the narrator. Yeah, the, the book, uh, at least Hocus Pocus, to my knowledge, it's an interesting one. It's, uh, the narrator is named after Eugene Debs. He's Eugene Debs Hartke. Um, and uh, he, he is an ambiguity himself, right? He's constantly telling us about how he has, how many people he's killed, um, you know, the ways in which he's, as you say, a war criminal. He actually um, he claims to be a, one of the people who's thrown, um, thrown a, a, a Vietnamese person out of a, a helicopter, which actually connects to a real-life incident um, uh, that, that, that... Many incidents. Yeah, many, of course, uh, uh, that people were aware of at the time as well. One of the situations that that he deals with in in the book also is, uh, and that you deal with, and and that you actually use in uh, to open your book, I think, Vietnam and other uh, American fantasies is is the novel. Uh, excuse me, Eugene Debs Hardkey uh, gets fired from his job as a, as a professor for you know telling the truth about the, the about the the war. To the children of the ruling class. Yeah, they, these are all. Uh, this is fascinating too. A part part of the book is that these are these are children of the ruling class that are uh, that are uh, basically ineducable, I suppose, in in standard ways. Yeah, pretty dumb. Yeah, <laughs> and they're and right. they're they're posed against the 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 prisoners uh, who, in this prison, which had originally housed uh, three hundred people, and is now housing ten thousand people. And they um, they managed to, to break out their rebellions, put down by the 82nd Airborne, which is, uh, arrives just from their skirmishes in the South Bronx. Well, you get the you get the get the picture. But and and he um, because because the assumption is that um, the prisoners weren't wouldn't be smart enough to figure out how to break out from this prison. That uh, our narrator must have must have led it, which is yeah, there are many, many, uh, I guess, uh, targets of attack in this particular book. Libraries, uh, higher learning education uh, institutions, as you say, prisons and universities go hand in hand here. Uh, obviously, there are inmates in each or the way we, the, who gets to have education and who gets to be, be put in prison. Uh, any number of targets, uh, Vonnegut scatters it around pretty liberally in this particular book. Yeah, you know, there's... Uh, there's a, a, a character that appears in many of Vonnegut's uh, books. It's Kilgore Trout. Mm-hmm. The, the short story writer, uh, novelist Kilgore Trout. So, so in, his, in this jazz mode, he just he he just throws in these, and sometimes in just a few paragraphs, um, a little science fiction, like uh, in in this uh, novel. Uh, there's a species, some remote planet, that wants to develop an organism capable of traveling in space um, <laughs> without being destroyed by any of the forces. That's a, I totally forgot about that aspect of the book. That that's that's a successful. Um, you know the, the how the organism is successful is you know uh, by basically killing and uh, killing its host or finding new hosts to kill, etc. So it's it's you know it's casting this idea of fitness uh, into this disease world as well. Well, it's also that they, they so that these aliens picked uh, us and figuring that if if this organism 
can survive what we do to the environment, <laughs> it can be able to survive space. Right. Um, and another another little thing that he that he throws in is um, another novel um, is uh, the, the, a, a robot that drops napalm mm-hmm. has halitosis, <laughs> and he's burned because of his halitosis. As soon as he cures his halitosis. He's acceptable. Nobody minds. <laughs> he drops me bomb. Little risks here and there. He's good. These uh, these three authors, uh, as we as we noted before, there's a way in which you can get away with a lot of things in fiction that you can't get away with in in what we call nonfiction or uh, an academic work or a work of history. Um, and uh, depending on the perspective of the historian, you can get lambasted uh, pretty quickly and, and pretty viciously. Yeah. Well, you know, the attack on the attack on Zim. You know, Zim's main book, People's History, is a, is a synthesis. You know, it, it doesn't claim to be mm-hmm. um, original archival research. That right. kind of history. It's a it's a sweeping synthesis. So, of course, if you want to if you want to take aim at it, you can you can right. find things. Um, to <laughs> that, that, that are targets. Um, Easy enough to do. Always uh, uh, the the point of the book is to is to l- is to take a look at the world with, that has been created and 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 see it from a different perspective. Bruce, we've got to take uh, take off right now. Sorry that we had to close. Um, that's our show, though. We'll uh, we'll we'll close with Larry Armstrong's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner, recorded in 1960 at Newport. Thanks, Bruce Franklin, for joining us for a long life sp- and for a long life spent doing necessary work. Thanks, Bruce well, Franklin. Pleasure to be on your show, Doug. You run a great show. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bruce Franklin's latest book is Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War, from Rutgers University Press, 2018. Let me also recommend what I think is his first book and where I discovered him, The Wake of the Gods, published in 1963, a study of America's greatest author, Herman Melville. That's a personal response, obviously. I'll also recommend his book of essays, Vietnam and Other American Fantasies. There's a great essay in there about the culture wars that includes insights into the literary canon formation in the 20th century, like the great book series as reactionary response to radicalization of culture in the 30s. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Our studio engineer today is Dan Withard. Cade Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.